You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 233, the Bonhomme Richard versus the Serapis. Last week, we left John Paul Jones leading a small fleet of ships against the British coast. The main purpose of the raids, at least as far as the French were concerned, was to distract the British from the armada that France and Spain planned to use to begin a massive invasion of Britain. But after smallpox decimated the French and Spanish crews, the Allies canceled the invasion. But by that time, Jones was well into the North Sea looking to cause whatever disruption he could. Jones's fleet had left France in mid-August. The French Armada had left France nearly six weeks earlier. After a shakedown cruise in June, Jones ran into some delays. Falling ill for several weeks, he was also trying to recruit more sailors. About the same time Jones sailed into the English Channel, the combined French and Spanish fleets were also moving into the Channel in search of battle. Jones had to collect a crew of mostly European sailors and marines. Some of the sailors were British prisoners, eager to escape jail, but not exactly what you would call dedicated to the cause. Other sailors were similarly poor men looking for opportunities to make money. They were not idealists looking to join the cause either. Some of his crew were ideologically inclined. Among Jones's crew of about 380 men, he took with him 140 French Marines, which was a fairly large number for a fleet his size, but necessary if he wanted to conduct coastal raids. Many of those Marines were part of the French Navy, but were from an English-speaking Irish regiment that always enjoyed an opportunity to shoot at the English. Another hundred or so were American seamen that Jones had obtained through a prisoner exchange with Britain. Many of these sailors were also eager to get back into the fight. The voyage did not begin particularly well. As the Bonhomme Richard left port, a sailor fell from the rigging just above Captain Jones. If he had fallen on the captain, he likely would have killed him. As it was, the fall was close enough to knock off Jones's hat. The unfortunate sailor hit the deck with a thud and died instantly. Jones did not flinch. He reached down, picked up his hat, and returned to his duties without comment. The Bonhomme Richard was the largest of the ships in the small fleet, but also the slowest. The Alliance, Palace, Vengeance, and Surf continually had to slow down and wait for the flagship to catch up with them. The other two privateer ships, the Monsieur and the Granville, also joined the fleet. One evening off the Irish coast, the current threatened to push the Bonhomme Richard onto the rocks. Jones sent out his captain's barge with oarsmen to tow the ship back out to safer waters. 
Now, the man in charge of the barge was one of the sailors that Jones had lashed for abandoning the barge while they went ashore, something I discussed last week. He and the other oarsmen decided to make a break for it. They cut the tow line and rowed for the Irish shore. Jones fired cannons at the escapees into the dark, but had no good chance of hitting such a small target at such a distance. He ordered a longboat to be lowered to go after the barge. Not only did the barge disappear, the longboat chasing him also vanished. Jones spent several days sailing up and down the coast looking for signs of his deserters. He sent one of his smaller ships, the Surf, to go closer to the coast and look for the sailors. To Jones's frustration, the Surf also disappeared. Jones, as I said, captained the Bonhomme Richard, while Pierre Landais commanded the second largest ship in the small fleet, the Alliance. As I explained last week, Landais was an experienced French naval officer who had left service several years before joining the Continental Navy in 1777. By the time the fleet left, Jones and Landais had spent months getting to know each other and working together. They were not, however, what you would call a good match. Rather, they were two rather incompatible officers who were thrown together. Landais was not particularly happy with his assignment. He would have much preferred to be ferrying VIPs like John Adams back to America and keeping an eye out for valuable merchant prizes that would improve his bottom line. Like most of the crew, Landais did not share Jones's interest in gaining glory and furthering the war effort against the British. Not only did Jones have very legitimate trust issues about his crew, he did not trust his second-in-command either. Normally, a military chain of command should be very clear. As Commodore of the fleet, Jones should be able to expect that his orders would be obeyed. That might not always be the case, as Jones discovered during his previous mission when Lieutenant Simpson simply abandoned Jones and sailed off aboard his prize ship. In some ways, this mission was even worse. French officers had forced Jones to sign a concordat before leaving France. The primary purpose of the document was to spell out how prize money would be divided. But the document also contained language that essentially said that the fleet strategy would be based on consensus, rather than giving Jones the final word on everything. Writing about the issue years later, Jones ruminated that under other circumstances he never would have signed such a document but that the French official had the ability to replace him as Commodore if he proved troublesome, and he did not want to have any further delays. So, Jones signed the agreement in hopes of finally getting to sea. Once at sea, his officers were testing just how deferential they would have to be. As Jones was searching for his escaped crew along the Irish coast, Captain Landay came aboard, upset that Jones had prevented him from chasing a prize ship into rocky waters that Jones deemed too risky. Landais announced to the Scottish-born Jones that since he, Landais, was the only American captain in the fleet, having been granted Massachusetts citizenship during his last voyage, that he planned to make his own decisions going forward. According to Jones's later account of the matter, he took Landais to his cabin and tried to work out their differences. He told Landais that Jones had supported Landais continuing to captain the Alliance, despite having spawned two mutinies on his last two voyages. Landais rejected the idea that Jones had anything to do with his command. 
Jones tried to change the subject, turning to the deserters that he had been trying to recover. Landay said that Jones was to be blamed for the loss by allowing the boats to go out during a fog. Landay later reported that Jones's response to his comment was to mutter, that's a damn lie. Now, accusing a gentleman of a lie was fighting words and usually led to a duel. Landay challenged Jones, and according to Landay's account, Jones locked the cabin door and the two men drew swords. However, before beginning to fight, the two men agreed that, for the good of the service, such a confrontation would have to wait until the mission was over. Landay returned to his ship, but after that time simply ignored any of Jones's orders, badmouthed the commander to other officers and men, and refused to set foot again on the Bunholm Richard. Because Jones's ship was so slow, the chances of capturing prizes with it were not very good. Landay began sailing the Alliance away from the fleet looking for prizes. Jones had to give up on efforts to catch several ships because he was always struggling to catch up with the Alliance. The announced purpose of the fleet's actions was to disrupt merchant traffic and capture prizes. But Jones had other goals as well. He had told Franklin that he planned to attack British towns and ports, as he had attempted at Whitehaven during his earlier cruise. Franklin let him know that the French expected him to go after shipping, but that people probably wouldn't be too upset if he attacked some coastal areas as well. The fleet sailed on. The deserters who landed in Ireland began to spread word that the pirate Jones was on the prowl again. Coastal towns built up their defenses and set out night watchmen. The Admiralty dispatched two frigates to patrol the waters just off Whitehaven, just in case Jones returned to finish the job he had started a year earlier. Jones, however, avoided those familiar waters. Instead, he sailed his fleet up the west coast of Ireland, avoiding contact with land and simply looking for merchant ships. The fleet made it up to the North Sea and turned east towards Scotland. On September 14th, the fleet was in the waters off Edinburgh. Jones called aboard the captains of the Palace and the Vengeance. The two privateer ships had left the fleet by this time. The surf had disappeared during the search for the deserters, and Captain Landay of the Alliance still refused to come aboard. Jones revealed plans to his remaining captains to capture the port town of Leith just outside of Edinburgh. They would force the town to release American prisoners to avoid having their homes put to the torch. The captains were hesitant to go along until Jones sweetened the pot by calling for a ransom of 200,000 pounds sterling. British defenses at Leith consisted of a small 20-gun ship and a couple of smaller cutters. The attacking fleet would be far enough away from the cannons of Edinburgh Castle to prevent them from becoming a threat. Jones planned to overwhelm the British vessels, send ashore a landing party to capture the city leaders, and hold them for ransom. Instead, things seemed to go awry from the beginning. During his talk with the captains, the fleet had drifted south and needed to sail back to the mouth of the waterway known as the Firth of Forth, where the Forth River emptied into the sea. By the time the fleet returned, it was daylight. Jones decided on another tact. He put on the uniform of a British naval officer and sailed in plain sight, appearing to be a friendly ship. The Bonhomme Richard soon encountered a small British cutter, which mistook the enemy for a British ship that was in the area. The cutter warned them that the 
Pirate Jones was thought to be in the area and asked if they had a cask of gunpowder to spare. Jones played into the mistake and sent over a cask, asking the cutter to send over a pilot to help guide them upriver. The cutter sailed away unsuspecting. The pilot who came aboard repeated the warning that the pirate Jones was in the area and that he deserved to be hanged. Jones then revealed that he was, in fact, the pirate Jones, at which the shocked man dropped to his knees, fearing death. Jones assured him that he was quite safe as long as he helped to navigate the ship, but that he was a prisoner. The ruse did not work for long. As Americans struggled to get upriver against the currents and wind, the alarm went out across the land. Families and businesses fled inland with whatever valuables they could carry. Men scrambled to find arms for a defense, but since Scotsmen were forbidden from possessing firearms since the Battle of Culloden, it was hard for them to come up with much of a defense. As Jones tried to approach Leith, the winds got stronger and blew against them. It began to rain hard. The storm put an end to any hope of landing a force at Leith. The fleet was blown out to sea again. With the element of surprise now gone, they had to abandon the raid entirely. Jones, however, was not ready to give up on a land raid. He suggested that they move down the coast and attack Newcastle, where they could destroy the coal ships. The other captains, however, refused to go along. The alarm was spreading, the enemy knew their location, and would almost certainly be sending ships to capture them. They were leaving, and Jones should too. Jones later said he considered going in on his own, but that his own crew was equally reluctant to participate in such a plan. The Palas and the Vengeance had already sailed off, moving south down the English coast. Jones struggled to catch up with them. His slow ship became even slower after the storm damaged his main topmast. After a couple of days, he managed to catch up with his fleet, which had once again joined up with the Alliance. By this time, it was the evening of September 22nd. Jones had orders to be in Trexel, a Dutch island off the coast of the Netherlands, to escort a French merchant fleet. Feeling defeated at the few prizes that he had managed to collect, Jones saw his mission coming to a disappointing end. The following morning, all that changed. On September 23rd, the Serapis and another smaller sloop were escorting 44 merchant ships from Scandinavia to England. The fifth-rate ship normally carried 44 cannons, but had recently taken on several extra, bringing her armament to 50. And not only did this outnumber the 40-gun Bonhomme Richard, but most of the cannons aboard the Serapis were much larger and in better condition. She was a faster ship with far more firepower and an experienced crew. When the Serapis captain, Richard Pearson, spotted the small American fleet, the 30-year veteran of the Navy had every reason to believe that he could defeat them. However, he also had to worry about the merchant fleet that he was protecting. The two opponents did not see each other until early afternoon. It then took several hours for each to maneuver into position. The ships met in the waters just off an outcropping of land near Yorkshire, known as Flamborough Head. Pearson ordered the merchant's fleet to sail for the shore, where they could find safety, while he moved the Serapis to intercept the strangers. Jones ordered his ships to form a line of battle. Instead, the three other ships simply sailed away, 
trying to cut off the merchant fleet and leaving the Bonhomme Richard to face the Serapis on its own. Through his looking glass, Jones spotted his counterpart, Captain Pearson, nailing his flag to the staff to ensure that no one would be able to lower the flag and surrender the ship. It was dark by the time the two ships got within range of each other. Captain Pearson identified the Serapis and demanded to know who he was facing. Jones called out, claiming to be the captain of a merchant ship, hoping to get the enemy captain to hold off firing until he could draw closer. But when a sailor in the Bonhomme Richard's rigging fired his gun, the nervous crew on both ships immediately fired their broadsides. This was the first time that Jones had the opportunity to fire his large 18-pound cannons with live ammunition. The older guns were not up to the task. One or two of the guns exploded, killing the gun crews and taking out a chunk of the starboard side of his ship. The loss of his larger guns also meant that the firepower advantage of the Serapis was that much greater. After the first broadside, the Serapis sailed behind the Bonhomme Richard and used its working 18-pound cannons to fire massive volleys through the ship's stern. The faster Serapis then circled around to fire another broadside into the bow of its enemy. Jones, however, managed to get some speed out of his ailing ship and rammed into the Serapis. He then tried to turn to fire a broadside into the British ship, but Pearson rammed him during the attempt. Over the course of the next hour, the two ships fearlessly launched volley after volley at each other at near point-blank range. The fatalities on both sides exploded. The Bonhomme Richard had taken more damage to its hull, while the American Marines, firing from the rigging, managed to decimate the sailors on the deck of the Serapis. Jones realized that he was sinking. His ship had far less firepower and was moving at about half the speed of the Serapis. Much of his surviving crew was below decks, trying desperately to plug holes and keep the ship afloat. Jones's only chance was to storm the Serapis. Taking advantage of a lull in the wind, the Bonhomme Richard slowly drifted up to the Serapis. American sailors and marines used grappling hooks to pull the ships together and crossed onto the enemy deck. The British, however, managed to cut the lines and push back the attackers. As the Serapis pulled away, it fired another point-blank broadside into the enemy's hull. Remaining barely afloat, Jones managed to move in front of the Serapis, leading to another slow-motion collision. Once again, his crew tried to tie the ships together and board the enemy. With many of the British sailors and marines on deck killed by American marines firing from the rigging, the American boarding crew was able to get aboard and begin hand-to-hand -hand combat. Pearson tried to drop the Serapis anchor in order to stop it from drifting along with the sinking Bonhomme Richard, but by this time the ships were too well tied together. As the Americans began to take control of the Serapis's deck, the British cannons below deck continued to fire into the Bonhomme Richard's hull. As both ships were locked together in a death grip, Captain Landay returned aboard the Alliance. He fired a volley into both ships, killing a number of Americans aboard the Bonhomme Richard. As Jones struggled to assist one of his cannon crews, he heard one of his men call for quarter. Apparently that man thought that Jones and First Officer Dale were both dead. Jones immediately called from another deck for someone to shoot that man, 
He pulled his own pistol and tried to fire at the frightened sailor, but his gun misfired. He then threw the pistol at the man. British Captain Pearson heard the call for quarter and called out to Jones to confirm if he was surrendering. It was then that Jones allegedly responded, Sir, I have not yet begun to fight. The fighting continued for another hour, during which time the Alliance made another pass, firing grape shot at the men on both ships. The Americans firing from the rigging were still able to maintain deadly fire against the Serapis. A little after 10 p.m., one of the men carried up a bucket full of grenades. These were small baseball-sized bombs with about 20-second fuses. The Americans tried throwing several of these into an open hatch on the Serapis, and after several attempts, succeeded. Below decks, the British gunners had gotten sloppy, leaving powder and shells sitting out in the open near the cannons for faster loading. The grenade set off a chain reaction of explosives below decks on the Serapis, killing many and horribly burning more of the crew. By this time, it was nearly 10.30. The Serapis had suffered a 50% casualty rate, had multiple fires aboard ship, and was threatened with being pulled under by the sinking Bonhomme Richard. Captain Pearson finally called for quarter. Jones ordered Lieutenant Dale to take a boarding party and secure the Serapis, and asked Pearson to join him in his quarters for a glass of wine. After a short time, Jones had to concede that the Bonhomme Richard was sinking. A fire had nearly blown up the powder magazine, the men below decks could not patch the massive cannonball holes, and despite efforts over the next 24 hours, Jones had to order both crews aboard the Serapis and cut loose the Bonhomme Richard to sink below the surface. The Alliance, the Vengeance, and the Palace also returned to assist with the survivors. Of course, the Serapis, now commanded by Jones, was also very seriously damaged. At least eight British frigates were storming toward the area in search of the pirate Jones. The American fleet managed to sail to Trexel in the Netherlands and pull into the neutral port for repairs. Jones's capture of a British ship of the line would lead to celebration throughout Europe and America and make Jones a celebrity. The British made it an even greater priority to capture the Pirate Jones. Next week, the French fleet cooperates with the Continental Army to besiege British-held Savannah, Georgia. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. They even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com slash ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. 
That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thank you to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter. Thanks also to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Lee Seam. Welcome also to my new standard bearers who made a first pledge last month, Carolyn Wood, Jacob Barnes, Eric Burgess, and Chris Grob, as well as Thomas Heath, who upgraded from Minuteman to standard bearer. I chose the name standard bearer for the $10 level because the standard bearer is the soldier who was given the honor of carrying the flag into battle. Flags were an important component of the battlefield fighting because it served as a rallying point for soldiers who might otherwise get lost in the confusion of the fighting. My standard bearer supporters receive a different Revolutionary War flag magnet each month. I also failed to mention last week that Stephen Coombs and Eric Wigginton both increased their pledges from Standard Bearer to Privy Council. In addition, Eric was the first person ever to donate to my podcast via Zelle. I greatly appreciate it, Eric, and also thank you much for your letter. Thanks also to Paul Kallenberger, Aaron Weiss, Kevin Cooper, and Scott Greenberg for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. While I am hoping to get 300 pledges on Patreon for continuing support of the podcast, these one-time contributions also play a very important role in covering my podcast costs, and I do appreciate it. This week, we covered the famous naval duel between the Bonhomme Richard and the Serapis. One of the things that may have struck you was the fact that Captain Landay of the Alliance, which was part of Jones's fleet, fired on the Bonhomme Richard and the Serapis as the two ships were linked together. After returning to France, Joan tried to have Landay punished for his insubordination and for firing on his ship during the battle. Landay defended himself against these charges by arguing that the Concordat gave him authority to ignore orders and that his stray shots that hit the Bonhomme Richard were accidents in the fog of battle. Back in France, Franklin said that only Congress could really judge the dispute between these two officers. Franklin also gave command of the alliance to Jones, who of course had lost his ship. Landay objected, and fellow Commissioner Arthur Lee backed Landay's claim to the alliance. At one point, Jones tried to take the ship by force, but Landay threatened to fire on him. In the end, Landay retained command of the alliance and left France with Commissioner Arthur Lee, whom he took back to America. During the voyage, Landay and Lee got into, guess what, a fight, and planned to duel once they reached America. Also, the crew tried to mutiny, twice during the trip. They finally put the first officer in charge and headed for the nearest friendly port of Boston. There, Landay faced a court-martial headed by John Barry. He was found guilty and removed from service. Later, Landay would command a French ship during the French Revolution, but another mutiny there resulted in his being dismissed from that service. After that, he returned to America in the 1790s to demand more money from Congress for his service during the American Revolution. He did receive some, but he would die impoverished in New York City. The Serapis, which 
Jones had captured was turned over to the French after its repairs. France converted it to a civilian-run merchant ship, and in 1781, off the coast of Madagascar, the ship caught fire by accident and was sunk. The remains of the Bonhomme Richard remain somewhere in the English Channel. There have been some efforts to recover it, but these efforts have been delayed by disputes between France and the United States as to who owns the ship 250 years later. My book recommendation this week is John Paul Jones and the Bonhomme Richard, a reconstruction of the ship and an account of the battle with the HMS Serapis by Jean Boudreau and David H. Roberts. This is a relatively short book, but it gets deep into the specs about the ship and the battle. So if you're interested in those details, this is the book for you. It was published by the Naval Institute. It's an older book, first published in 1987, and it's out of print. You can get a copy of it on Amazon, but copies are pricey. My online recommendation takes a broader look at how naval affairs were handled during the American Revolution. It is called The Navy of the American Revolution, Its Administration, Its Policy, and Its Achievements by Charles Paulin. This book was originally written as a Ph.D. thesis at the University of Chicago, but was published as a book in 1906. It's a detailed look, not just at the Navy itself, but at the civilian bureaucracy that helped to keep it running. It not only looks at the Continental Navy, but it also looks at various state navies that operated during the American Revolution as well. So, if you want to learn more about the folks who were constantly upsetting the Navy captains and unable to give them ships and men and supplies, then this book is for you. As always, you can search for it on archive.org or use the direct link on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. My question this week asks, is George Washington buried under the U.S. Capitol? The short answer is no. Technically, Washington's not buried anywhere. His body is entombed above ground on the grounds of his home in Mount Vernon, Virginia. But the reason this is even a question is that when the U.S. Capitol was built, the architect made plans to have a crypt underneath the main rotunda where George and Martha Washington would be entombed. After Washington's death in 1799, Congress communicated with Martha to remove his body to the Capitol. George had explicitly requested in his will to be entombed at his home at Mount Vernon. Despite this, Martha reluctantly agreed to his removal to the Capitol, citing her husband's regular habit of putting public wishes ahead of his own. Then, Congress did what it does best. It dithered and delayed. The central part of the Capitol with the dome was not completed until 1826. By 1829, Nearly three decades after Washington's death, the Capitol architect had a plan in place to receive the body. They hoped to have the internment completed by 1832, the centennial of Washington's birth. By that time, though, Martha also had passed, and the new owner of Mount Vernon, George Washington's grandnephew, John A. Washington, refused to allow the remains of the general to be disturbed. As a result, George and Martha remain entombed at Mount Vernon. Now, the bodies had been moved once because the original site on Mount Vernon was in danger of falling into the Potomac River. However, they have remained on the estate since their deaths. 
The area under the rotunda in the capital remains known as the crypt. It contains 13 statues donated by the original 13 states, as well as a replica copy of the Magna Carta. Beneath the crypt lies a burial site that had been intended for George and Martha Washington, and it remains empty to this day. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please email me or reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, or Quora. I'm happy to answer your revolution-related questions. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.